Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with three-time All-Star and the winner of the 1993 AL Cy Young Award, Jack McDowell. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. Today on the program, I'm joined by a three-time All-Star, and he was the 1993 AL Cy Young Award winner. Ladies and gentlemen, Jack McDowell. Jack, thanks for coming on the program. All right. Good to be here, man. Uh, right out of the gate, you a, are you a baseball player that plays music or a musician that plays Well, music? yeah, I've gone back and forth on that. I, you know... Started playing guitar when I was like 10, 11 years old and got into it. Actually, I got into writing songs and being more of a musician the year after I signed with the White Sox and I had to go back to Stanford to finish my my whole school thing. And that was the first time I was in school when I didn't I wasn't allowed to go to baseball practice because I wasn't on the team anymore. <laughs> so I was kind of bored. I didn't have anything going on. So I was like, okay, I'll bring my guitar. And I started writing songs and stuff like that. And that's kind of where the whole music thing started for me. You know, I, I I've always <clears throat> growing up, I think about that. I, Cause you know, you know how it is with, with musicians. I, I, before you started playing, maybe you knew, but like if I walk into a bar and somebody drops, drops down on the uh on the piano and starts playing it's like wow i wish i could do that i i i went to i signed in uh 1990 uh, i went to a ball and there was a guy on the team and he he had a guitar and, you know you have those long but well you didn't you weren't in the minor leagues we'll get to that in a bit you weren't in the minor leagues that long but we'd have these long bus trips in the, in the Carolina Lake and he'd have his guitar. I'm like, that'd be cool. I'm going to, I'm going to learn to play the guitar to, you know, pass the time on these bus trips. I went out, bought a guitar started. And, and I asked him, I said, what do you, you know, how'd you learn? He goes, Oh, I just taught myself. Okay. I'm going to just teach myself. Well, that lasted like one trip. I ended up selling the guitar, but I've always kind of been envious of, of musicians and, you know, guys that could sing or play an instrument. It was kind of cool. Cause I grew up and I was, I was one track, you know, I was a baseball player. That's all I ever wanted to do. And, you know, I got to live that life out, but uh, I, I think it'd be cool having something on the side like you did. And, and I don't know, how, how did it correlate? Do you think being with, in a band, being in sync versus you on the mound, being in sync with your catcher? Is there any correlation there? Well, the one thing that that changed and pushed me towards the music a little bit was, you know, the only thing that supposedly mattered in my life was that I was a baseball player and and I was an athlete. And it just kind of was a little bit uncomfortable for me overall. So it was, you know, when I started writing music, all right, and I can put something different in my life and have some fun with it. So that's kind of the direction I went. And as far as the band goes, yeah, it was, I had great dudes with me to be in the bands that I had and haven't done anything for the last like 20 years. And then this year I got into the computer stuff where everyone's doing right now, which they just record everything on their computer and mix it on their computer. And so I just did a new CD that I just finished about a month and a half ago. Very cool. You, you toured with the smithereens. Give me what's the difference be being on the mound, big stage. Let's let's call it postseason. Being on a stage playing music. Well, I always laugh about that. I always laugh about being a musician where you're recording stuff or being, you know, like a, a star, a Hollywood star where you're recording a movie versus being an athlete. Because guess what? I throw I throw a baseball and give up a home run. There there ain't nobody going. Okay, cut, cut, cut. Let's do that again. We got to get it right. <laughs> right. That's the difference of sports. Sports is always there. So the cool thing is, yeah, playing live music, you can mess up, and a lot of times the crowd doesn't even hear it. You know, if you mess up a lyric a little bit, if you mess up a chord a little bit, you know, it's just you're never going to exactly play 
you know, exactly play what you're going to put on your record. Some of the band, the bands that are the best bands, they do that. They're the ones that, you know, that they had to play to record all the way through the song from the start to the finish back in like the 60s and 70s. And then that started to change. I thought about that the other day in San Diego. I went out and I uh, went and saw Pearl Jam recently. I took my son. <clears throat> he plays guitar. And I was explaining because, you know, in my time in Seattle, like got to know Pearl Jam a little bit. Eddie Vedder had come by uh, the locker room quite a bit. Cantrell with Allison Chains, he'd come by. So I was giving him a little bit of a background. But I, w- I was thinking about that exact point during the concert. Thinking as baseball players, you as a pitcher, me as a hitter. I have a rough night. Everybody knows. Everybody knows I stunk tonight and and crowds will let you know. But I'm watching them play and I'm going, you know what? There wasn't a person in here because he sounded great. He's still got the chops and he sounds as good as he did 20 years ago. And I thought if he screws up tonight and and in his mind had a bad night, I'm not going to know the difference. I'm still going to leave and go, oh, it was Pearl Jam. They were great. They still sound great. Whereas in our occupation, like you said, you give up a home run, you get you get your ass kicked and you're, you're out of there in the fourth, giving up a five spot. Uh, everybody's going to know. I punch out with a runner on third, less than two outs twice, you know, my first two at-bats. Everybody's going to know I'm having a rough night. But when you're a rock star, it's like you kind of can get through it. And, yeah, you're going to be – you're going to be – hard on yourself because it's what you do and and you know when you had a a great performance or you didn't but it can be covered up a little bit more oh absolutely absolutely that is all the other stuff other than sports the sports is the real stuff that you you know you you have to do it well football is a little different than baseball though as far as all that goes because let's say you know you're the left tackle and you miss your block or you do something wrong. Does anyone really notice that? Not really. So that's a, you know, that's one sport that's a little easier to play and not get hammered on by everybody on the, on the outset, but yeah, that's what you can do. But baseball, the other part of baseball is this man. And you know, this, you were a hitter. Come on. So, and this is what I try to teach all the pitchers that I ever coach like going, you know, you don't need to strike everybody out. They don't need to swing and miss every single time. I said, okay, let's talk about Hall of Famers. What's their batting average? What's a, what's a Hall of Fame batting average? 300, a little over 300. What does that mean? That means the best players of all time in this sport have gotten out seven out of ten times. So guess what? That's baseball. Throw strikes, and you know what? You That's how you – do it. Yeah, pitch to contact. And I mean, the greatest guys of, of our era, you know, the Greg Maddoxes of the world. It wasn't a punch out. He'd save the punch out when he needed a punch out. And you know when that comes as, as a pitcher. Well, as I, I've always, yeah, I've always said that too, that, that I think strikeouts are one of the most overrated things because guess what? Outs are outs. It doesn't matter if you strike somebody out. The only strikeouts that matter our runner on third, less than two outs. That yeah. is where that is where it only matters if you strike somebody out, and that is a big thing you did as a pitcher. I agree, and the standards have changed. You know, this this modern day, it's a little different than when we played. You know, it, it's all about strikeouts. It's all oh, yeah, that's all they a, care. <laughs> it's all about but, walks, and it's all about uh, home runs. And yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of things and we go back and forth on this, uh, a lot of things about, you know, this current generation. I, I, I never, Jack, I never wanted to be that guy that said, you know, cause I'd come out of a game and, and, you know, my dad or my grandpa's there, you know, talking about their generation. I mean, like, come on, come on. I, I don't want to get into that. So I, I always, I always said, I'd never be that guy. That looks back. I always look for the positive. What what does today's game bring uh, that I wish I would have had? You know, I'm a little envious of how much how much data you have at your fingertips, because I was I was one of those those video geeks. You know, if I'm facing Jack McDowell tonight, I'm going to watch your last outing. The last outing I faced you, I'm a, I want to get as much intel as I can to formulate my plan against you. What what is my, you know, what's my track record against you? 
what what have you been successful uh, against me? If I've gotten you, what have I gotten you on? Because I know you know those things, and it's going to all formulate in your plan. So I loved having all that. What these guys have at their fingertips right now, I'd be I'd be sitting in the room the night before a series, and I would study every guy in that bullpen for the last three weeks. How are they pitching? Who's hot? Who's not? I'd have everything. But then there's some other sides of the ledger uh, that's going on in the ter- current game. You know, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And I think kind of too much information in the wrong hands can be detrimental. And I, and I look at some of the players today. Yeah, some of it's great, but, but some of it I think is overdone and we're getting away from what's really important in the game. And it's not necessarily the current player's fault. You know, they're brought up that way. They're brought up to have a cue card in their back pocket on defense to go, oh, I go to X for an 0-2 pitch against this particular guy. That blows me away. You know, as a second baseman thinking, no, I, I was offended if anybody ever came out of the dugout and tried to tell me where to defense. No, I know my starting pitcher. I know how he's been. I know if he's hitting his spots tonight. I know the hitters. I know their tendency. So I can defense myself. And I remember if a coach would come out of the dugout and say, hey, Booney, two steps to the left. Hey, who are you to tell me? I know where to play Tony Quinn right here in this particular situation. So today I watched, I watched the kids take that cue card out, and I just – I'm blown away. Like, how, how am I writing something down? I should know these things. But I think if you're brought up in that culture of, no, this is what we do, I, I necessarily don't put it on them as, hey, it's your fault. No. That's not how you were. You were brought up to read that cue card. Well, the thing that I'm amazed about is that all of the metric stuff and all of the predetermined things that are forced down every manager and every player's throats in the sport now, when is the first ownership going to say, okay, we're going to go back to a little bit old school and we're going to kill all these people because it's we're, we're going to have so much more because baseball is not a predetermined sport. It is a pitch to pitch adjustment sport, pitch to pitch adjustment as a pitcher. You know, you, you try to read what the swing was and what he may be sitting on or what your ball did. Did you throw it and it had no movement? Did you throw your breaking ball and it was a lazy one? It's always pitch-to-pitch adjustment. For hitters, absolutely pitch-to-pitch adjustment. Oh, I just fouled that one off or, or oh, I saw that come out of his hand and, you know, I recognize this. It's pitch-to-pitch adjustment. When you're on defense, same thing. It's not predetermined. It's read what the pitch is going to be and where the swing is. And that gives you your first couple steps in the right direction. And base running is the same thing. Every single thing in baseball is not predeterminable. Yeah, it gives you some ideas on things. There are certain things that do, but it's all about adjustments as to what is going to happen because you never know the reality of what's going to happen. That's a great point, too. And you talk about reading the swing as a pitcher. I hated pitchers that would actually be paying attention. And not, not everybody did. The elite did. And I knew, I pretty much knew, you know, by five, six, seven years in the big leagues, I kind of knew the guys that were watching me. So I, I, I didn't want Jack McDowell to catch me sitting on his split finger. Because if he catches me, now the game starts. Now the game inside the game goes to another level. Oh, well, I, I know Booney in that particular situation. What are you doing taking a fastball down the middle with the bases loaded? You're obviously not looking for that pitch. Now, <laughs> now, so all the, funny. now all of a sudden, so here, funny. Here, here, the, here goes the game. Because I when I leave that on deck circle, I've got something in my mind what I'm doing. And now I got to think who's on the mound because is he watching me? Did he read my body language? Did he read that my my foot got down a little bit late because I'm looking for something off speed and he threw me a fastball away. Now he might have a little grimace on his face. Like, ah, I caught you. I remember uh, I hated the catchers that were really astute and really watching the game. You know, the, the Jason Veritex of the world, they, w- they weren't just going with their program. They were, th- he kind of gave me a look if I would take a, a fastball for a strike in the fat part of the plate, like kind of, 
take his mask up, look at me. Oh, must not have been looking for that one. Oh, now I got to change my foot. Now what's he going to do? The chess match begins. But I think that's the fascinating part of baseball and the real, the nuts and bolts of it that you don't see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's just about pitch-to-pitch adjustment, period. The end. That is the truth of the game if you want to play the best possible game, you know? And I I think these kids' swings today, uh, once again, the swings are different. So maybe analytically, it is a little more predictable because we're talking about uh, swing path. We're talking about the launch angles. So, so the, the, let's just put the average player, not the elite players, not the Mike Trouts of the world, but the average guy, they probably are a little bit easier, uh, in 2022 to track from a data standpoint on where, what the outcome is going to be, because it's a robotic swing. This is how I, I have taught my swing. Whereas in our day, we didn't have all these analytics. We didn't have, we, we just, let's go up and try to have a good at bat. So I think you take a guy out of, you know, let's say the year 2000, it's going to be a lot more difficult to, to defense than today's players. Maybe I'm, I'm going along that track. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to, to, because I think this game, you've got to bend with the game. It's not our game anymore. You know, I, I was laughing the last year or two. The, the big topic is what are the unwritten rules? And I thought about it a lot. You know, when we played, it was an eye for an eye. I catch you. You catch somebody stealing your signs from second base. Well, someone's going to pay for that. That's just the way it was. And once that that was taken care of, OK, now play on. It's a different game now. And, and I laughed at when people said, Brett, what are the unwritten rules of the game? Well, I can tell you what the unwritten rules when we were playing in the 90s and the early 2000s. But now I'm a 53-year-old fan of the game. You know, I have kids that are, that are in the minor leagues. The, the unwritten rules are whatever the current players determine them to be and if they're okay with it. And it doesn't matter what we as ex-players believe. What do you think about that? Well, as far as all that stuff, yeah. But, I, you know... As a coach and coaching at every single level from little league all the way up to pro ball and going all around back and forth, back and forth all around. If any of this metric stuff worked for winning games and making people better and this and that, I'd jump right on it in a heartbeat, but I I have not really seen anything that is positive and helps people be better players or helps teams be better teams or, you know, helps anything. I just I don't get it. And some of the stuff that they're doing, I feel like if they talk to a real baseball guy and he, he and they would let us know, oh, we're doing this. The one thing when I was managing in the Dodgers Meyer leagues and they started all the metric stuff when the the Tampa crew took over the old school Dodgers guys, they we're doing all this stuff. And I asked them a couple of things. One funny thing that I did when I was with the Dodgers is they said that, Oh wait, your minor league team, you have so many strikeouts. You guys have the biggest strikeout of, uh, you know, percentage of any team at any baseball thing. It's unbelievable. You guys got to fix that. So you want to know how I fixed it? I told our players, okay, here's what we're going to do. Any O2 pitch, I want you guys automatic take. Do not swing at O2. And they're like, okay, you know, they're listening to me. And and you know, we couldn't tell anybody, but once the people up top heard that I was doing that, they got really upset and said, This is just gonna ruin guys. Well, here's the thing that I that it was. I said, O2 count, take it, because a lot of times. The majority of it, it's not going to be a strike. They're trying to get you to swing and miss. And so what you do is this. If it's a fastball up, guess what? The next pitch is going to be a slider away. So that's how you go about it. If it's a slider away, the next pitch is going to be a fastball up. This is the kind of thing. So what I want you to do is O2. I want you guys to relax, take a breath, and just follow the ball with your head quietly. And now you're restarting your thing very quietly. And guess what? We completely changed as a team and striking out by that kind of thing. And we went from being the last place team in the first half of the season to the first place team in the second half of the season. 
And they got really mad at me for doing that because they said, that's not going to work. So I told the, the metrics people there, I said, okay, why don't you do this for me? I said, you have all this information at every team, at every you know team that you have has all of the metric stuff. And you can see when a pitch is an actual strike or a swing at a ball. So go look and give me the numbers of an 0-2 pitch and let me know how it goes. And so they went from single A, double A, triple A to the big leagues. And guess what? It got to be a higher list of no strikes the higher you went. And it started like it, it owes oh, it 13% strikes in A ball, the 0-2 count. So why would you plan on swinging? Double A was like, you know, 37%. Triple A was, oh, 50%. Yeah, because guys have better command so they can mess with you with an 0-2 pitch. And then the big leagues is like some crazy number. And I'm like, okay, so how was I wrong in what I was trying to teach these kids how to relax when they had two strikes and just, you know, do what they're going to do? And and I think, too, you know, back to our <clears throat> our talk earlier about um, – the cat and mouse game, you know, as we go up, I mean, this is the minor leagues and especially low a ball. That's a learning time. Double A, you're still learning. When you get to the big leagues, I expect you to be uh, ready to go. You're in the big leagues for a reason. The teaching, uh, I mean, I, I don't think you ever stop learning, but the teaching, I, I expect to have a pro that I'm going to put out there and I don't have to worry about them. But I think you start to realize that too. The O2 take, you know, in a ball, you're not going to really notice that Jack McDowell in his heyday is going to go. This guy takes O2 every single time. And I know that. Well, you probably O2, then you're going to throw him a strike. But that takes time and that takes uh, uh, experience to know what to look for in the tendencies. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's the one thing I've always said to everybody. I said, what was your most favorite pitch to throw in the O2 count? And my answer has always been a strike. Why not? That You have a hitter in the biggest hole you're ever going to get him in. So if you throw a strike right now, he doesn't know what type of pitch it's going to be. He's got to take a swing at it. So if you make a good strike, you're going to do well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, coming out of high school, you're a 20th round pick. You ended up going to Stanford. Um, and this is an entry. I want to see if this is true. I was, uh, I missed you by one year, your junior year, you end up signing. Um, and I went on a recruiting trip to USC where I ended up attending for three years. And I think Stanford was in town. You were pitching, playing SC. And now correct me if I'm wrong. Something something went on that game, whereas SC was trying to pick your pitches. And, and when I got to USC, yeah, I knew that we had a an element of we'd try to pick the other pitches. They'd give it, you know, kind of that college -y stuff. Yell out something for a fastball, yell out something else for a for a breaking ball. But I think you caught wind of it that game. And I remember, because you know, when you're a kid, you go on a recruiting trip, those college guys are like, your eyes are big. Like, Ooh, I remember Ed Sprague who ended up being a teammate of mine for years as your third baseman. I'm thinking, Oh, Ed Sprague. He's, you know, I'm just this high school kid. I'm thinking, what a star. He's the Stanford stud. And I remember you pitching that night and you were telling the hitters, all right, you want to know what's coming? Here's what's coming. And you were telling them what's coming, and I think you still ended up dominating that game. Is that a true story? Well, it was the only time that happened was the was the first time that you know that when Dato was out and new coach came in, and he was at third, and he was watching. Yeah, and he, he was watching. This was at Stanford when this happened, and I only did it with one pitch because he was calling the pitches. Because yeah, he was watching how I was going into my glove and all that. So I'm like, okay, well, I got to move my glove a little more if this guy's checking it out and all that. And so it was just an 0-2. I forget who it exactly was to. It was like an 0-2 pitch. And I said, here comes the fastball, dude. Just hit it. And I threw it by him. He swung, swung and missed. I was like, okay. <laughs> and that was the one time that that happened. Why'd you, why'd you pick Stanford? Well, because Data was leaving. And, you know, who didn't know anything about what was going on at SC. Both of my brothers played at USC. And, you know, I was recruited actually by Arizona, Arizona State. The only other trip I took other than Stanford was to Arizona State. Barry Bonds took me around for that 
recruiting show, wanted me to come there. But then the coach takes me back to the 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 airport and he goes, well, if my son had a chance to go to Stanford as opposed to Arizona State, I'd definitely send him to Stanford. And so I was like, okay, well, we'll talk to you later. I'm like, I, I, I don't know if that was the truth or he just didn't want me coming there or what, but that's how I ended up going to Stanford. Mark Marcus, give me a little on Mark. Mark Marcus, when my, my dad went to Stanford, he was a third baseman. Marcus was his first baseman. Now, I just played against Marcus. You know, he, he always had that nervous look uh, to me as an opponent. He's always sitting down there picking dirt. I, I know he's, I think he's left-handed, but he wore his watch on, on the other hand, like Phil Mickelson. But he was kind of, Marcus was a kind of, he's kind of a legendary college coach, Uh you had anything on Mark Marcus for me? He never talked to me. I knew I knew Dad was a teammate of his, but we never had any interaction. I never got recruited to Stanford. You got any Marcus for me? Yeah, he uh, you know he was the head coach. Um, Dean Stotts ran all the practices and did a lot of that stuff. So uh, on the baseball end, I mean, I know you know Mark was the head coach, and so had you know you're in college, you got to do so many different things outside of just coaching in the baseball. So Dean Stotts was the one who ran a lot of the practices and did all that stuff. 1997, uh, win the College World Series. Um, I never got to go. What was that like? College World Series, Rosenblatt. As college players, that's kind of the pinnacle. Um, Never got to do it. All it's cracked up to be. Oh, it was very cool. And, you know, I had got to leave school to go watch my brother, Jim, win in 1978 um, when he was at USC. And we got to we got to go and watch that happen. So all of a sudden, you know, that was what mattered to us. Let's try to win it. Let's try to win the whole thing. And that that to me is still the most important thing of any team sport you can, you know, celebrate your individual stuff, but you can always be a better individual player. You're never going to completely maximize an individual statistic or an individual whatever you can do in any sport. But guess what? If you win a championship as a team, you have reached the very top pinnacle. What else could you have done? Nothing. You reached the top. So that is the one thing that you should always shoot for is, is going to win it and be champions. And so, you know, that was cool. I got lucky. I mean, freshman year, I went in there when we went to the series, we were number one in the country, but we got beat. We got beat two out of three. I won the one game against Arizona and we lost two games to Miami and ended up winning it all. And then sophomore year, we lost to Oklahoma state and then Junior year, we went after it and got it done. Pretty cool. The end of that, uh, your junior year, uh, you get drafted fifth overall, the first round uh, with the White Sox. You only you only played six games in the minor leagues. Only guy that's similar to that for me. I play, I was a teammate of uh, Johnny Olerud, and he never went to the minor leagues. He went straight to the big leagues. I used to tease him because at the end of his career. Uh, he got released by the Mariners. Uh, Red Sox picked him up, but he went to the minor leagues first. And I said, Johnny, you're doing it in reverse. You know, he never went uh, out of the draft like like the rest of us do. But you only played six games in the minor leagues. You go to the big leagues and you're 3-0 and right out of the chute. Um, I think I think Jim Fergozzi is your first manager. Tell me about that going from college to real brief in the minor leagues to having success right away in 1987, even though you're just there, you know, you went three and zero with a one nine three. Talk to me about that transition. And well, because, the, all right, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was going to say the most, the most positive thing about it is, you know, as you move up in everything from, you know, high school to college or from, you know, just playing little league into high school, things like that, you, you know, you hope that you're good enough and that you can keep going, keep going. The one positive thing is from my freshman year to my junior year, there were guys drafted that all the way went to the big leagues. And so I'm watching guys in the big leagues that I pitched against my freshman year 
and they're already there. And so I was like, okay, well, man, if I've already played with these guys, I think I've got a chance to be a big league player and be solid. So that gave me some good mentality to start it all off. 1998, uh, you're there all year. You go five and 10. 1989, and that's a little bit of a, a question mark for me. What happened in 89? Because all of a sudden, you make 16 appearances in uh, in AAA. I know you had some injuries. Take me through that 89 year. And what's going through your mind? Well, the what happened in that whole thing was in the, like I think it was mid-September of my rookie year, and it was it had rained a lot, and so it was wet field at Old Comiskey, and I went to back up third, and hit like a big water thing that I didn't even know was there, and slipped and rolled my ankle really bad, and so they ended up taping my ankle up, and I kept pitching. Which nowadays, if you do anything, just pull you out. I, you know, back in our day you could keep going. You just tried to keep going. So I had to pitch with my ankle taped and because it was a different momentum of bending your ankle and pushing off, it was my right ankle. My right leg kind of had a little bit of a pulled groin, but it didn't hurt too bad. But then the next start it tore and so I was out the rest of that season, but then I was, you know, the whole off season, it wasn't like anyone did anything to help me. I didn't know what was going on. I just hoped that it would get better. But, you know, even come spring training, I hadn't even done a whole lot of work or anything to get ready. So now we have a new manager, Jeff Torborg comes in and he sees me for the first time. And, you know, I wasn't throwing great because I was just getting into shape again. It wasn't like I came into spring training ready to roll. I came into spring training and I hadn't been able to really do anything because of my torn groin. And so what they did was say, oh, his velocity is not very good and he's not doing this. So let's try to increase it. So they tried to change my mechanics, which messed me up a lot. And about halfway through that triple A season, then they sent me down and, you know, I didn't do well trying to throw too hard in triple A. So I had to go back and search my high school and college videos to see how did I used to throw the ball? Let me get back to that because that was a solid thing. It was just me and my mechanics and doing that. And so once I got back to that, I was healthy and and got better. And so that's what really helped. So that's, uh, I mean, that that's the one thing that has helped me coaching pitchers is guess what? I am not going to try to change your mechanics, you know, specifically I might change a couple things and just have you mentally prepare for something, but I'm not going to, you know, do all these different things. Cause that's what causes injuries. 1990, you're back in the big leagues, you go 14 and nine, and that's kind of the, the beginning of a uh, pretty good run for you. Um, playing in Chicago. How was that Cubs fans versus versus white Sox fans? Well, it's, you know, tough to tell because we never played Cubs. And it was it was funny because I always got to tell everybody the Cubs had the fourth pick and the White Sox the fifth pick on my draft year. So I'm like, hey, Cubs, hey, it's not my fault. I'm not there. You guys didn't pick me. So, you know, there you go. And I look back and I go, why? If they would have picked me, it would have been me and Maddox coming up as rookies. You know, we might have we both had got to stay there. I look back now and I wish that I would have been in the National League at some point. Number one, their strike zone was a lot bigger. And number two, I was a two-way player even going to college and could swing okay and do that. And that would help. If you were a pitcher that could do something offensively, that would definitely help you win games. And they just I just never went that direction. I always played in the American League. 1991, you're an all-star for the first time. You'll be an all-star the next three years. You win 17 games. And uh, something that's that we're not seeing these days, complete games. You led the league complete complete games that year with 15. That was the mindset back then of the pitcher. You know, there, was, there were certain uh, bars that were set. What was important? You know, winning 20 games, that was a big deal. Today, you don't see that very often because – 
not only they, they really don't allow it to happen. You know, it's I remember as a player, you know, and I never pitched, but I remember how important it was that that manager let you get through that fifth inning. So it, it was on your record. Now, today, it, it's really not that the game isn't set up for that. And uh, back in a time where it was, how important was that 20 games? You won 20 games twice, 92, 20 and 10, 93. You led the league in wins with 22. You also led the league in complete games again. But back when it was the mindset, when did you start thinking? Because 20 was a big number. I know it was for on the pitcher's standpoint. When did you start thinking, I got a chance to win 20 games? Wow, it's just game to game, man. And if it, if it went well, it went well. And, you know, once that, when I won that 17 and 10 with the 15 CGs, that 91 year, it actually was one of my better years. But if you go look, it was a handful of blown saves that year that just happened. And I, you know, I did the games that I didn't get to finish. I ended up getting no decisions on. And I did that. I did that a few months ago. And I was my sons playing little league right now. And, they're um, actually my other son's in eighth grade. So he's in middle school ball and they're asking me, you know, what was your career like? And what about this? What about that? So I went and looked and I looked up that I had 64, no decisions in my career. And my ERA of the 64, no decisions was 2.15. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, well, that that didn't work too well for my wins and loss record, but whatever. <laughs> you know, you do what you do and you just, you know, try to be better and out there. And nowadays they're predetermining when you're supposed to come out of the game. But guess what? The other team is the the one that tells you when it's time to take the pitcher out. Well, I look at, you know, I look at it kind of twofold now. You know, you're right. There, There is, oh, we can't go third time through the lineup. Um, I don't know, though. You know, certain guys, uh, the one thing we are as athletes is it, everybody's not the same. You know, people are wired differently. I just think as a manager in today's game, uh, you live with, with your 26 guys in that locker room for six months you know them pretty good. It's about reading people. There's certain guys that I walk to the mound and it's a look you give me or it's a look you don't give me that determines whether I take you out or I don't take you out. I don't think we just do it because uh, because the data says. I think it's a safe way to go. You know, I think, hey, hey, the computer said that postgame meeting, you're in there. Hey, why'd you take him out? He was dealing in the fifth. Well, the computer said, oh, okay. You know, the writers, yeah, the computer did say, so there's really no onus put on yourself. I, I think the great managers, I think there's a gut element to it. I think the great, you, you can't be great with, without having that great gut. You know, the, at least the guys I played for. Yeah. Uh, there's the baseball side of it. There's the lefty and the righty. There's the matchups. I get all that. But I think the great ones, when push comes to shove, when the game's on the line, a big moment, you go with your gut. And the and, and I think the great managers have that great gut. Yep. And here's one thing. Think about what used to be said in our era. Okay. These pitchers that are good, you better get after them early in the game because once they get going and you know they get their rotations going and they're doing good, they're doing good, it's gonna be tougher. It's not like Every pitcher, oh, the third time I face this guy, he's going to kill him because he's seen me two times already today. The way it used to be was if you don't hammer the good starters early in the game, then you're going to get, you know, and that's the truth of pitching. There are some games when you go out there and, you know, you're not, you're not, you just feel a little bit off of your mechanics and it's a little bit weird and you have to make adjustments to get better as you go along the game. And that's just part of the things you, you don't know exactly what your players are going to give you that game or that at bat or against that batter. You don't know exactly. You can't predetermine that. And that's my whole frustration with everything that's being done is you just cannot predetermine what's going to happen. 
You know, you have to be able to to figure it out and be able to do it. But what can you do? That's just what they're being forced to do now is just predetermine everything instead of actually having to know what's going to happen or see what's going to happen and kind of make a decision because you know your player. One of the funniest things I did with coaching with the Dodgers too and all the, the players I did this with, they still talk to me and laugh about it because I used to get it about 90% right was, you know, I throw batting practice every single day. I was the only guy who threw batting practice on our team. And so I threw it every single day to all of our players. So guess what? I could tell who was on fire and who was a little bit off when I got done with BP. So you knew what was going to happen during the game. So I would go to the, before the game and say, okay, you, he's the one that's going to go deep today. I know it. And I would pick one guy and 90% of the time, that was the guy who went deep and had maybe three hits. And they were like, coach, how do you know this? How do you know? I'm like, dude, I throw BP to you guys every day. I can tell who is ready to roll and who is not, you know, it's not just because numbers will tell me what's going to happen in the game. A lot of the time too. Yeah. You know, it's as simple as, you know, going into a series who's hot and who's not. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, I know him and he's a great player. The last two weeks he's struggling. I know him and he's an okay player. But if you see what he's done in the last week, it, it pretty much is as simple as that sometimes that, and we, I think we tend to overcomplicate things. Obviously a, a, a Barry Bonds, like you mentioned earlier, obviously Barry Bonds is Barry Bonds. That's never going to change, but there's a lot of other guys that, Man, this guy's he's he's 10 for his last 18. You better be careful with him in the lineup right now. Sometimes it's as simple as that. It's tr- that is true, but realistically, is he going to hit 480 for the whole time or is this going to get back to normal at some point and when is that going to happen? Who knows when it's going to happen. Right. You know? It, oh, no, yeah. guys guys that are struggling when is he going to get back to his normal self? You know, you can't predetermine that. It's just right. going to happen. Right. Is it going to be this series or it's not? Usually, uh, you know, and I would always do that. I would look, okay, look at this guy. He's hitting this, this, and this. Well, usually you can flip that bubblegum card over. That usually tells the tale. Nine times out of ten, usually what's on the back of the bubblegum card, when it's all said and done, it's probably going to fall in line with that. Yeah, but it's the same thing. It's Pitch to it's pitch when, adjustment. Right. It, it, <laughs> right. it, it's when when is that gonna when is he he's 10 for 18 right now? When's he gonna fall back to that 250 hitter he's always been? Or that guy that's you know one for his last 18. Well, now he's a 300 career. When's that gonna cut, catch back in? Um 1993, yeah, you win the Cy Young Award. Change your life at all going into the next spring training. Is it different coming in as the Cy Young Award winner? Well, not too different. You know, I was I just don't understand the White Sox. The White Sox never offered me even a single year contract. They they took me to arbitration every year. They took me to arbitration that year too. And I just like, why, why wouldn't you just offer me something? So I actually, before that went down, I met with Jerry Reinsdorfer and I said, Hey, this is my sixth year. You guys kind of, you know, whether you're going to sign me as a free agent or whether you're going to let me go. So, you know, if I'm going to stay around, why don't you just give me a one year contract and let's just do that. So we don't have to go to arbitration. So no, no, you're not going to arbitration where we'll, we'll get it done. Don't worry about it. And they, the night before the supposed arbitration, after all that was, I was offered four different, four-year contracts. And I said, okay, I don't care. You pick which one you want. I don't care, but I I would like to stay for four more years because we just kept getting better every year and finally went to the playoffs and we're starting to get to be that team. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I want to stay here. And the next morning they're like, nope, we're not going to do it. You're going to arbitration. So just went to arbitration and knew that I was done there. And then got, you know, got traded in the night in, which actually is illegal. I got the illegal trade to the Yankees that year. After the 94 season. You know, that's interesting to me. I, I never went to arbitration. Uh, you went through it, I think, three times. 
Yeah. What's that? What's that process like? I know a lot of people don't like to go to arbitration because you're sitting in basically a courtroom and you got your employer who wants you to do well, not being very nice to you. They're trying to prove how how bad of a player you are. And and the other side, do you get is there some uh, is there some bad blood after your experiences with the arbitration process? Well, yeah, it's all negativity they're giving. And think about it. I went to arbitration three times after winning 17 games, 20 games, and 22 games. And they're taking me to arbitration rather than us trying to, and never even offered a contract that we, you know, talked about or wanted to do, not even a single year contract. So I think a lot of it had to do with because, you know, I was one of the top pitchers of my year. And so whatever my contract was going to be, everyone behind me was going to jump up to that. If my contract went up, you know how that all worked. So I think they were kind of maybe forced to take us to arbitration. It was me and Kevin Brown. I know Kevin went a couple of times too, I believe the same thing because he was, you know, right up there with me in the same year. So I don't know, you know, I don't know why they did it and why it never went that direction, but never went well. After the 94 season, you got traded to the Yankees. Uh, New York. What's it like? I always wanted to play there. When it was all said and done, I said, you know, at the end of my career, I'd like to go play there, see what it's like. Uh, never got that opportunity. How was it? You were only there one year. You went to the playoffs. Uh, ended up my Mariners. It ended up beating you guys in the postseason. But what was that one year in New York like? Oh, it was cool because the the team that we had overall was one of the best overall clubhouses that we've I've ever I was ever in, and that was really cool. We had a bunch of cool guys on that team, and the fact that you know they hadn't been to the playoffs in thirteen years, and we finally got them there. That was kind of cool. Ninety six, ninety seven. You go to the Cleveland Indians, you go back to the postseason to face the Marlins, and you finish it out with the Angels, uh, 98-99. In those, the last couple of years of your career, was the writing on the wall for you? Did you know that, that it was getting to the end? Well, I just kept having the, an injury here and there and that caused other injuries. So that was the problem. And the one thing that happened is I had the one thing that really messed it up when I was with the Indians, I had on my top of my elbow, you know, or the, the tennis elbow soreness is on that top. It's not really a pitching soreness. I had this weird thing going. It was like really sharp pain there. And they did all of these MRIs and couldn't find anything wrong. And didn't know. Now I know what it was. It was just a nerve pop, you know, a nerve thing that was fired up. And they said, oh, well, we can do a surgery and fix it. I'm like, I don't even know what they're going to fix. So they went in there and cut it, but they cut through the nerve, which killed a muscle in my forearm. So, and I, which I'm still, I have a dead muscle in my right forearm. And so I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to pitch again. That's why they got rid of me. And I, you know, that off season, I just tried to get better, keep going and see if I could pitch. I didn't know if I was going to be able to pitch and didn't know what was going to happen, but I had, because I didn't have that muscle, I could go for a while, but then the strength wouldn't be there. And I felt like that, you know, my arm was just flapping and then my elbow would get sore and then my mechanics would have to change. And I ended up tearing my shoulder because I'd changed my mechanics to protect my elbow. So I had to have surgery in my shoulder also. And that's kind of just towards the end. It just reached the end. Yeah, that's it. That's a. It's interesting. People don't really talk about that much. You're right. When you when you have a little bit of an injury, you start doing things different uh, to to protect that injury, and you end up injuring something else. And now you're all out of whack, and it's it's yeah, it can be something that's that you know. In your case, ends up making you retire after the '99 season. 127 and 87, 385, hell of a career. Um, 
And I want to talk to you a little bit about coaching. When I uh, when I retired, I came back and, you know, we crossed paths a few times, but you were big in the Rancho Santa Fe Little League. And then my kids were, you know, were younger then, uh, but they ended up going through that. Um, did you like, did you like uh, that level? Was that fun for you? Cause for me, I, I've worked a little bit in the, in the, my, uh, I was a Rover, not a Rover. I was a special assistant with the A's for, for two years. And I actually really enjoyed that working with minor league players, but my son's growing up, I did the, you know, I did the travel ball, but some of my, uh, favorite times with the kids were when we finally got a good group, you know, it wasn't the, and as you know, working in, in, uh, working with young kids, it's more about, it's more about the parents than it is the kids. You recruit good parents that, you know, little Johnny doesn't have to play short pitch, hit third and fourth at the same time. You get a great, good group of parents and good players and you can have a lot of fun, uh, in youth baseball. Did you enjoy that level coaching the young kids? Well, I, I enjoy it and also feel like that it really helps develop you into being a great coach because you get to learn the things that you can progress forward with that actually work on the field and that with kids, you know. And I learned so much more about that, about how to teach people how to do stuff and how to, you know, not do this, not do that because I've seen what that actually does, you know? And so that's why coaching the young kids was cool. And then, you know, moving up and nowadays like coaching, coaching a college summer league, the Appalachian league, the turn of the college league that I coached in two, two summers ago. I, <laughs> the Burlington sock puppets. I got, yeah. And I got, yeah. the, I got the, all of the pitchers that we had, not one of them, went over to cover first on a ground ball to the right side and not one of them backed up a base on a hit to the outfield with guys on base. And I'm like, okay, you know, I had to tell my other coaches, okay, guys, have you ever seen this? Like, I've never seen this. This is crazy. And we're like, okay, well, we're going to have to go run some little league practice and show these guys the reality of what they need to do. And the crazy thing about that is that same year after that season, Look at that big, the big crazy plays that happened in the World Series of the pitcher not backing up the bases and a ball getting thrown past the third baseman and two more runs scoring and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, nobody knows what to do now. I don't understand why nobody has taught guys the correct stuff to be able to really play this game correctly. That's what's kind of frustrating and watching it a lot of the times. You got to get back to PFP basics. Yeah, and it's not just the pitchers. It's also other guys. You know, the ball's hit and everyone just stands around. No one moves in a direction. Uh, it's there's so many things that need to be taught that aren't taught anymore, and that's what I believe in. How was it for you coaching this summer team? I mean, we're getting to the age now where, you know, it's like probably the majority of the players you were coaching weren't born your last year in the big leagues how do you, do you have a, what's it like relating to them? Well, it was fine. You know, it's just hoping that they'll uh, agree with what you're coaching them and what you're teaching them, you know, because a lot of times they would rather just watch something on their iPhone that is different than what you teach <laughs> that they're kind of throwing down everyone's throats these days. So one of one of the funniest things I did that summer was all of our pitchers that we had on that summer team. I looked at all their college numbers to try to figure out who was who and you know who was more of a reliever, who was a starter, who was going to do this. And every single pitcher we had was at least a walk per inning guy, which is not a great thing to be as a pitcher, but that's how they were. And I was like, okay, they're trying to overthrow the ball, trying to, you know, worrying about the velocity and not worrying about throwing strikes. That'll be up something that I'll eventually, you know, watch and try to try to see what they're doing with all that. So one of the things that I did, and this was kind of funny, is I threw one round of BP and then I went out to left field. I said, all the pitchers, get over here. Come over here. So they all circled me up in left field. And I said, okay, we're doing some McDowell metrics right here. 
let's watch batting practice and let's every let's look at every hitter and let's figure out what their batting average is in batting practice. Because batting practice, we're just throwing 50 mile an hour doo-doo fastballs down the middle and you're just hitting getting loose for the game. You know, we're not trying to get them out. We're trying to have them crush balls. So watch what happens. This is baseball. And we watched, you know, oh yeah, you crushed that one 112 miles an hour right at the shortstop. You're out. You know, <laughs> doesn't matter what the launch angle is, what the exit velocity is. It's where the ball lands and just happens to be where it is. And that's just part of the deal. Nobody hit 400 in batting practice when I had that discussion. And I'm like, okay, well, there you go, guys. It's batting practice. So what does that mean? Throw the ball over the plate. Throw strikes. Your whole thing is to have the adjustment to strikes and up and up and away, down and in, up and in, down and away. Have different. That is how pitching is. It's not just your velocity and your spin rate. It's adjusting to where you're going to throw the ball and have command. That's what is good pitching. And, you know, hey, my metrics proves it. We did the numbers here. I think the game, um, you know, I'm always going to love this game. I, I was born, It's all I've ever known, you know, from when I was one uh, to current. I definitely have my favorite uh, times of the game, you know, growing up uh, when dad was playing in Philadelphia, that's, you know, and usually your childhood, that's a lot of your fondest memories come from them. I, I definitely enjoyed our generation, the nineties, early two thousands, my career. Um, the one thing I, and not that I worry about it. I, I think the pendulum will swing back. I think there's always a correction in the game. Um, but the only thing I worry about a little bit, and, and I mentioned to you, when I was playing, you know, the first thing I'd come out of a game and, and my grandpa would be there and he'd be talking about his generation and, and, you know, Ted Williams and, and, uh, he, he just would really defend his generation and he'd always kind of poo poo ours. But I knew deep down grandpa loved, he still loved the game. He had that passion for the game. And even though it wasn't his generation, he still loved coming to our games and watching us play because it was a great product. I think my dad, same thing. I worry a little bit now because the purists, the guys that have been in the game for uh, whether it's from a player's perspective, from a personnel uh, in an organization's perspective, whether it be a writer. I'm hearing more and more that they don't enjoy the game the way they used to. And I think that's a little bit uh, – troubling for me thinking these guys that have dedicated their whole life. That's all they've done is it, they're baseball crazy. They're actually not enjoying the current game. They don't like the strikeouts. They don't like everything being uh, broken down to, like you said, spin rate, exit velocity. We don't care if it's a double play. Yeah, that's great. They that hit it 110 miles an hour, but that's not really what's important. You know, I had Albert Bell on the program recently. And as you know, Albert, one of the greatest, uh, power hitters in that 10 year, you know, his, his career got cut short uh, with an injury, but for 10 years, he was about as good of a run producer as there one. It wasn't all of the game. And when I talk hitting with him and he says, Brett, these guys, it's like, I watch these guys in the box in a situation in the game comes up. I don't even know if they know the situation is. And he talks about, here's a guy that hit 50 homers and 50 doubles and driving in 156 runs. And he talks about when there's a runner on second and there's no outs, my job is to get him Move to third him base because yeah. that's how you play the game. When you hear guys like Albert Bell talk like that, guys like Edgar Martinez, that's what they talk about is playing the game correctly because that's what you do. And in over 162 games, that will result in the most productive outcome. And not only that, I learned that playing with Edgar, that's how you play the game. And that creates a team atmosphere like no other. I, I was, you know, I played an Atlanta Braves team that went to the World Series, won 106 games. We had unbelievable talent and we steamrolled everybody, won the division and moved on from there. Then I played for a Seattle Mariners team that was very talented. We won 116 games in 2001. But that team chemistry was unbelievable because we played the game right. 
And because we moved runners over, we hit the sack fly. We hit a 18 hopper to short. If that's what need be to score that run from third. And I found that it was unbelievable how everybody was pulling for everybody else. Well, if Edgar will move the runner over, I'm going to damn well move the runner over for my guy behind me. Johnny Olerud hasn't driven in a run in 10 days because I moved the runner to third. He just had a can of corn and had a sacrifice fly. And now he believes that he could drive a run it. Cause as, as much as we have these personas as players, there's an insecurity too. And if I haven't driven in a, a run in a week, I'm starting to think about the back of my mind. Like, am I ever going to drive another run? And now all of a sudden I do that confidence comes up and, and it, and it just, I don't know, by playing the game, right. It trickles down to that 25th now 26 man on the roster that we're all pulling on the same end of the rope. And I think it just adds for something that team chemistry that you can't take away. That makes teams great. Yeah, it does. And it also helps win games. You know, this, yeah, the it's reality. What, it's the reality of it is you do, you know, move forward, move forward, move forward, get a couple runs. You know, that's what you're trying to do. It's not like you hope we're just going to hit a home run with two guys on. And I, I think that the the numbers, if, you know, people like us, old school baseball guys would get with the metrics people and say, okay, now measure this. Now measure the reality. Like when they said that stolen bases, you can't do stolen bases because they're overrated and you have to be at a, you know, it's that 80% safe out of eight, you know, eight out of 10 steals or else it doesn't make sense to steal a base. I'm like, no, it's stealing a base is specific about what the situation is, who's hitting behind you. Who the pitcher is, if you slow, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with that. Or if you read that he's probably going to throw a breaking ball here, which means you're going to get it, you know, close to half a second more to get there. I just don't understand that. That that all this stuff is being measured, but the reality of the things that are actually on the field and that actually happen aren't control, aren't aren't measured correctly. It'll be interesting going forward to, to, like I said, to see if that pendulum does swing back. They're, they're- uh, it's like it's like I said earlier. When's the first, you know, first team gonna not buy into all this stuff? It was like the funny thing. How did every single major league team force the catchers to do the one knee down thing and do that this year? So they're all being controlled by the same people rather than just trying to have a good team and put put together a good team to win. I don't get it. You know, I feel like I wish I had billions and billions of dollars to go buy a team and just, you know, within two years, just <laughs> play walk it away with it. Play it straight up. Yeah. it's yeah, uh, Just play the game and just go, oh, too bad. You can measure it all out, but guess what? Right. You know, who cares? And, and with the rule changes coming back next year, you know, I'm not a proponent of the shift. I don't think uh, shifting, uh, I, I just, I don't believe in the overall numbers. I think if you played it straight up versus playing these shifts, uh, I think it would be a wash in the end. You know, I, I need to do a little more research on it, but I also don't believe that you can tell me how I can defense. So it's going to be interesting when, the, when you know, next next year, if you're the second baseman, you can't be on the left side of, of second base. And, and I can't, be on the grass at all as an infielder that's bizarre to me too you know in my day if i had a if i had to play slight pull uh on a left-handed hitter at second base you know i might take three or four steps out onto the grass in a pull situation now all of a sudden you're getting penalized you can't even be on the grass so i think as much as they're they want to get away from those shifts it's like now okay now i can't stand on the grass and i think i think you're still going to shift as much as is in the is in the uh, rules book that you can. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I I think there's some positives. It's going to force the true shortstops to be true shortstops again. I think it, it's going to force the second base to have to turn a double play, even though it's not like it was uh, when my whole job was to avoid somebody trying to, to knock me in the left field. You know, that's where I kind of hung my hat as a second baseman was that's where I earned my money. 
It's it's not the routine ground ball. It's turning that tough double play in the ninth inning to win a game with with Kurt Gibson trying to knock me in the left field. I took a lot of pride in that. It's how you separated being a great defender from an average defender. Nowadays, uh, you got third baseman turning double plays because you can't take anybody out. And and I think that's cheapened the art of of the middle infield. I think that's cheapened it. And I don't like to see that as a as a former middle infielder, but you know. Who cares what I think? And and we'll see how the game goes. Jack, This it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been interesting. Where can uh, the fans get get and access your music? Uh, yeah, most of the stuff I've done is just through my, my Facebook post. But if anybody is interested in getting any of the CDs, I still have a bunch of them. They, they aren't in stores anymore, but I've still got a bunch of CDs here at home. I mean, they can just hit my my email if they want my email. My original band was called Stick Figure, so my first email I ever had, which I still have, is called Stick Jack, S-T-I-C-K-J-A-C-K-1-1-1, <laughs> stickjack111 at Yahoo. All right, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun. Uh, right. and, and what we do each and every Boone podcast, at the end of the podcast, as we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.